Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 7. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that he has been given, that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by way of the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Thus far, God's word. Keep a marker or a finger in there. We won't be starting with that passage, but we'll be getting to it a little later on uh, this morning. Well, the Bible is full of surprises. In fact, everything in the Bible should take us by surprise. And the reason is this. There's nothing in the Bible that would naturally occur to us. That's why it all had to be supernaturally revealed. So three years ago, I was preaching a sermon series out of the early chapters in Genesis And I was surprised to learn that animals and humans were both created on the same day. Now, evangelicals don't want to be confused for animals. So we either distance humans and animals or we play up the differences between humans and animals. But the Bible tells us that God created humans and animals on the same working day. And so it shouldn't surprise us that we share some similarities with our six-day friends. So for instance, uh, there are animals who can do math. There are animals who use tools. Uh, Some animals create culture. Animals show emotion. Uh, They express playfulness. Uh, How many of us enjoy playing with the dog or playing with the cat? There are even some things that animals do better than we do. So for instance, an eagle uh, is able to see eight times better than we can. A dog, a dog's sense of smell and I find this fascinating, is 10,000 to 100,000 times greater than our own. Imagine what a rose or a gardenia smells like to a dog. 
And as my hearing diminishes, even in face-to-face conversation, uh, the older I get, whales can hear not just across the pod, but they can hear for miles and miles and miles on end. Well, here's another surprise that grabbed me from those early chapters in Genesis, and it's this. God is a giving God. Now, at first blush, that seems obvious. Uh, God gave us the heavens. God gave us the earth. uh, God gave us our lives. He gave us one another. But when you take another look and you begin to drill down in these early chapters of Scripture, I think you'll be as surprised as I am to see the graciousness of God in his giving. So consider Adam and Eve pick death and God gives them life. Cain takes a life and God gives him a life in the person of his son Enoch. Uh, Humankind deserves the flood but God gives them the ark. Now, they didn't all take it, but it was there for them, given by God. And this theme of deep and gracious giving continues on through the Old Testament. So Israel prefers Egypt, and God gives them the promised land. Um, David chooses adultery, and God gives him Solomon. Solomon was the son of Bathsheba. Israel favors Babylon, and God gives them Jerusalem, and it just goes on and on, right into the New Testament, where Paul makes it expressly clear that we chose the wages of sin, but God graciously gives us the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This surprising observation leads to just one more, and it's this, is the people of a giving God, we too should be in the habit of giving. Giving is a habit that reflects God's image in us and is his means of grace to the world in which we live through us. But it's a habit to which we are not naturally inclined because we're grabbers. (laughs) We're takers. We are users. We are not givers. In fact, our inherent inclination to take, take, take is exacerbated by the me first world in which we live, where hubris comes before humility, pragmatism before principle, uh, swagger before sportsmanship, comfort before any kind of conviction. But lest we think that the, the me first Uh, Take, take, take is just a 21st century thing. Consider this. Upon the establishment of God's people in the Old Testament, that is, upon their arrival in the promised land, what is the first sin with which they had to deal? It was grabbing, wasn't it? Achan takes the designer coat from the forbidden spoils Uh, there in Jericho. And what did he do with that which he took? He lied about it. 
And he paid for that lie with his life. Consider further the establishment of God's people in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, the constitution of the church. What is the first sin with which they had to deal? Grabbing. Ananias and Sapphira, skimming off the top of that real estate deal. And what did they do about it? They lied. And they paid for the lie with their lives. So our sinful grabbing tendency runs deep in our legacy as well as our own lives. So how do we grow in the godly, gracious habit of giving? Well, to begin with, we see what Scripture has to say about that. That's habit number one, at which we looked a couple, three weeks ago. Then we steadily grow in that habit by way of prayer. That was habit number two, which, of course, leads to furthering a lifestyle of worship, a la Romans 12, verses one and two. That was habit number three. But before we look at what the scripture has to say about giving, we we have to be clear on this foundational fact. And it is this, everything, everything belongs to God, everything. The heavens are his, the earth is his, Everything they contain belong to God. And he sums this up succinctly in Psalm 89, verse 11, where we read, the heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. So since everything belongs to God, that means that whatever we have belongs to him as well. Uh, Our riches belong to God, and so he warns his people, beware lest you say with your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth, Deuteronomy 8, 17. Our own lives belong to God, the breath in our lungs. So the psalmist confirms, the Lord is the earth's and those who dwell therein, every last one of us, Psalm 24, one. That fact that everything belongs to God cannot escape us. We need to remember it, to put it positively. We mustn't forget it, to put it negatively. Otherwise, the law, the poets, and the prophets tell us that we run the risk of becoming full and proud scoffing and denying and saying, who is the Lord? But even with such a clear warning, our taking, grabbing tendencies continue to work their serpentine ways through our hearts. I grew up on a lot the size of a postage stamp in Whittier. In fact, the distance from my parents' bedroom window to the neighbor's back door is 13 feet, four inches. So we we know them. (laughs) Well, compare that to the last 14 years during which my family and I 
lived on five acres in rural Indiana, part of which we cleared and uh, on which we built a house, five acres that included a woods and a creek and a couple of clearings, one of which was bigger than a neighborhood park uh, in the suburban uh, Chicago town in which we lived. We had farmland that was contiguous to over 20 more acres of the same. Five acres on which I cut down trees and bushes. In fact, um, going off script here, it occurs to me, I knew I was no longer living in Whittier when I sat on my back deck one day working on my chainsaw while listening to country music. (laughs) Uh, I'm in a different place. I was a different man. I mowed brush and grass. I built trails and bridges. And all of it brought me a great deal, and I think an appropriate sense of satisfaction. But every once in a while, and it was usually in that big clearing down below our backyard, that humble satisfaction would sometimes, within my own heart, turn into self-exaltation. And I would look around, and I would glory in my property. Look how much I have. My trees. Too many to count. And I'd begun to do that once upon a time. My trails that I had blazed. And uh, my spirit would resonate with Nebuchadnezzar's who uh, within his own heart one day, looking over Babylon, said, is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? (laughs) Well, my five acres were no Babylon, but uh, I think you get the point. Then one day, my daughter Kelly and I went to the county library, and we went to the archives, and we looked at all the plat surveys containing our property dating back to the year 1860, because that's as far as we could go. And you know what I learned? Other people, persons other than I, once owned my property. <laughs> it wasn't always mine. Which led me later to ask the question, Well, whose was it before all of them? Uh, Back to Adventure Week. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and everyone in it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's the Lord's. That was a good lesson to learn. Because you know what? That property belongs to somebody else now and I'm living back on that little lot. (laughs) If everything belongs to God, if everything belongs to God, then none of us are owners of anything. We're stewards. We're caretakers. That's what God made Adam and Eve to be. But Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. And true to family form, that's what we want to be as well. Ken Conser, who was the second president of our 
denominational seminary spoke to our greed-embracing terms. Listen to Dr. Concert. We must give up all our wealth. We must own nothing. We're only stewards of what God owns. We are to abandon completely any claims to the wealth of this world. It's not our own, and we do not have ultimate control of it. So with the Lord's help, we want to consider how to turn our natural tendency toward grabbing into a supernatural grace of giving. So consider how the Lord did that back in the Old Testament where there were five kinds of required giving. First, there was the Lord's tithe. Uh, We read about that in Numbers chapter 18. 10% off of one's annual income, and it was given to support the priesthood, so God's work among the people. Then there was the festival tithe. That's in Deuteronomy 12. 10 more percent, so we're up to 20% now, and that was given to support an annual national feast to build community among God's people. Then there was the poor tithe. That's in Deuteronomy 14. Ten more percent, but that over three years, so 3.3% per annum. Now we're up to almost 24% a year, and of course that was given to help the poor. On top of those three taxes, God's people were directed to let the the poor glean from the unharvested corners of their farm fields, and then from time to time pay a temple tax for materials used in offerings. Not to pay these taxes was to rob God. You say, how is that? Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it the world and everyone in it. That's why years later the Lord indicted his people by saying, will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings. Either by shorting God or not giving them at all. Malachi 3, 8. Israel not only owed their lives to God, but their liberty as well. It was the Lord who freed them from a life of slavery under Pharaoh and into a life of freedom under him. So God certainly had every right to annually require roughly 25% from each one of his people. But wait, there's more. (laughs) There were not only five voluntary taxes, but there were two involuntary taxes as well. Tokens of gratitude to God that expressed one's reliance on and rest in his already proven and inexhaustible grace. So to begin with, there was the first fruits offering. That's in Numbers chapter 18. That was given at the outset of the harvest before the entire crop had been brought in. Making it a true faith offering an expression of trust that no matter how much more was yet to come in, because that was only the first fruits that had been harvested, the Lord would see to it, fat or lean, that his people had enough. Well, along with the first fruits offering, that voluntary offering, there was also the free will offering. That's in Exodus 25. And a free will offering was uh, called for 
Um, for example, when God directed Moses to uh, build a temple. And so the people, you know, they're already tithing about 25%. They're already offering even more in first fruits. And yet, God invites them to test his faithfulness, to drill down deeper into the stores of his grace, to give even more. And their response, their grace giving on this occasion was so great that Moses finally had to say, enough. Concerning all of these offerings, one scholar writes, giving from a heart flowing with the grace of God, whether the giving be mandatory or voluntary, has always been the ideal for God's people. So what does this grace giving look like in our age, in the New Testament age? Well, it starts by understanding that our treasure is seated not in the world, but in heaven. That's where our treasure is, where it's free from the ups and downs of the financial markets, the greedy hands of thieves, and the dust and decay of the world. And until one understands this, grace giving is impossible. It's impossible because as Jesus goes on to say, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Luke 12, 33 and 34. So the question that we all have to answer this morning is, where's our heart? Where's your heart? One way to tell where your heart is is by looking at your bank statement. When you open it up and and see what's there, ask yourself this question. Am I investing in the things of heaven or am I investing in the things of the world? If you're preeminently investing in the things of the world, then no matter how much you have, you'll always be working with limited resources. But if you're preeminently investing, if if, if your trajectory in life is giving to investing in the things of heaven, then no matter how little you have, you'll always be working with unlimited reserves. And that's why one day in the temple after watching the rich uh, give from their abundant leftovers, and a poor widow give all that she had in two little coins Jesus said that the widow had given more. And she'd given more because she'd given from her heart. Well, the wealthy had given from their hubris. And those subtleties don't escape the Lord. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart, 1 Samuel 16, 7. So grace giving in the New Testament is very much like grace giving in the Old Testament. It begins by recognizing that God owns everything, even what's in our bank accounts, and then living like it from the heart. And to encourage this posture in the uh, prosperous church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul held up the example of the poverty-stricken churches in Macedonia. So turn back to 2 Corinthians 8, and we'll take a closer look at Paul's appeal here in relationship to these uh, Christians in Macedonia. Notice here in verse two, 
that Paul refers to the Macedonian, Macedonian poverty as extreme, uh, we get the word bathysphere from that term, you know, that, that submersible craft that's lowered to the deepest reaches of the ocean so that it can uh, survey and explore. And then the Macedonian affliction was severe. Uh, the literal sense of the phrase meaning that they were being squeezed by the difficulties of life. The pagan culture was testing their Christian commitments and sensibilities. But even in light of these hardships, take a look at verses three and four, Paul writes that the Macedonian churches gave to a relief fund for the saints, not only according to their means, but beyond their means, uh, literally contrary to their means. And they did so of their own accord. That is voluntarily, even earnestly begging to take part. In other words, it wasn't Paul begging them to, to chip in and help out. They were begging Paul to be a part of the project. So what was the source of this bathnanimous giving? Well, notice in verse five that it came from the Macedonian Christians giving themselves first to the Lord and then to Paul and the need at hand, all of which Paul refers to there in verses six and seven as an act of grace. But notice in verse nine, that it was all given in response to what God had given to them first. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Why did Jesus do that? You know why he did it? He did it because he loves us. He loves us. He who was given in love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, he who was given to us in love also loved, like father, like son. He loved and gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, Galatians 2.20 and 1.4. He loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, 2 Thessalonians 2.16 and 17. He loved us and gave himself up for us, that like him, we too should walk in love, Ephesians 5.1 and 2. Like Old Testament Israel, the New Testament Macedonians understood that love and that their life and liberty both came from the Lord. They who were once dead in their trespasses and sins were now alive in Christ and rich toward God, Luke 12, 21. And when one soul has been ravished by God's grace in this way, then that natural impulse to grab, to take, to use, isn't just reformed, it's transformed into a gracious, supernatural reflex to give. To give bountifully, thoughtfully, freely, cheerfully. Chapter nine, verses six and eight. You wanna know what the New Testament requirements are for giving? There they are, chapter nine, verses six through eight. Bountifully, thoughtfully, freely, cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver. 
Those are the kind of people who inspire us, right? The people who live that way, who live like their treasures in heaven, such as uh, the well-known British MP William Wilberforce from days gone by, who because of his love for Christ at one point of his life, at one point of his life gave up a quarter of his privileged income to charity. Or his cousin, Henry Thornton, who gave away six-sevenths of his wealth. Then there was Hannah Moore. Hannah Moore was a contemporary of Jane Austen and far more popular in that day than Jane Austen. Hannah Moore was the first million-selling author. But she was so moved by the life-giving gospel of Christ and, and so challenged by the poverty that was all around her that she poured a substantial portion of her fortune into uh, rehabilitating her community and evangelizing them in the name of Christ. And then there was Charles Simeon, who lived on a modest stipend throughout his adult life while putting his wealth into a trust which he used to give benevolences. In fact, near the end of his life, Uh, Simeon sold the copyright on his 21-volume magnum opus, and he gave it to gospel ministries. All the proceeds he gave to gospel ministries. So brothers and sisters, it all comes down to this. According to God's word, habit number one, and with his help, habit number two, we need to get out of the habit of grabbing and get into the habit of giving. Sacrificially, charitably, sincerely, thoughtfully, bountifully, preeminently, like the Macedonians, we want to be the first ones to give, lovingly, freely, cheerfully. Because if you give in that way, if I give in that way, if this church gives in that way for the sake of the gospel, We will shine like a city set on a hill and lead our community from hopelessness to life. Now, in human terms, that's uh, surprising. But in God's economy, not so much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We don't want to be grabbers, but we are. We want to be givers, and we want to be gracious givers, just like you, who gave up the wealth of heaven, became poor, and even died on our behalf so that we might be rich, so that we might live abundant lives here and life everlasting with you. That's so much to take in, but... Lord, we're grateful for it, and we pray that our giving would reflect our gratitude now and in the days to come for the sake of your kingdom and its advancement throughout this community, across the country, and around the world, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.